when it comes to spiritual things, people totally like throw out their common sense or how things work. And some people don't want to try because they don't want to fail. But in real life, when you're learning to do stuff, you know, you're going to fall, but you got to get back up. You got to persist. God is building character. God is doing a deep work of building endurance and character and hope inside of you. But he takes us through trials. Hey, everybody, this is Brooks Popwell. For the person that's dealing with sexual sin, it can be tempting to wonder whether there is some answer hidden out there that will provide an easy solution to their problem. But the reality is, victory over sexual sin isn't easy, and it isn't found in a simple formula. It requires a determination to overcome many difficulties through God and His grace. So today, although we can't cover nearly everything involved, We're going to talk with some of Pure Life's biblical counselors about three things that block people from overcoming sexual sin and what to do about them. First, Ken Larkin addresses a wrong attitude people can have about this issue. Then, Jim Lewis shares how pride factors into this battle for purity. And finally, Jeremiah Aiken tackles the problem of what to do when you're trying to change but failing. This is Purity for Life. One of the privileges you and I have working here at Pure Life is we get to see and hear so many men talk about their time here and what God did in their lives when they graduate. And I know one of the things I've heard over and over is guys talk about when they got here and how they thought that they just had this one small problem of their sexual sin. That's not the same for everybody because some people see it as like an insurmountable mountain of an issue that they just don't see how they could get over. But a lot of men do see it as something that's just a small problem in their lives. And I thought I'd start by asking you, what are some indicators in someone's life from your perspective as a counselor that you see that show you they have that kind of attitude, that my sexual sin is just a small problem? Well, Brooks, one of the things I would say off the bat is uh, they're willing to compromise and flirt with their sin and treat it like it's okay or it's not that bad. Um, With that, uh, whether they're being confronted by someone else or in their own mindset, they're basically minimizing their behavior and, you know, maybe looking at it from a worldly standpoint rather than what the Word of God says. Um, the psalmist said there's no fear of God before their eyes. So they're living a life where they're basically living life casual and flippantly, and they don't really see the seriousness of their sin. I like the uh, old adage, morality is not a line, it's a direction. If someone's getting as close as they can to the edge of that line, they've already blown past God's line a long time ago. And, you know, we teach the idea of repentance. We should be staying as far away from sin as possible because it really is a life and death situation. And if you don't see it that way, then you're going to live your life flippantly without really little regard to what you're doing. And just to underscore the seriousness of all sin, I like the uh, quote by the Puritan uh, John Owen. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that's the attitude we need to take with sin, not some casual, flippant uh, thing, but it's seriously, it's life and death. 
It's amazing how easy it is to be in sin so long and, and face, you know, consequences. Just so much of the negative side of an addiction like sexual sin, and to still not see it as a problem. I, I remember that's something that took a long time for me to see when I was dealing with it. I mean, it makes no sense, but it, it can be hard to get to that place of seeing just how serious this is. So what is it about this problem in itself, sexual sin, that makes it something that's hard for people to recognize for what it is in their own lives? I mean, I, I think of an, any other addiction, alcohol, other substances, and how that can also be that way. Why is it hard to clearly see it yourself when it's you know something that's obvious to other people? I would say, first of all, that sin is deceptive by nature. But really, with sexual sin, you can live fairly a normal life. Like if you're totally given over to uh, drugs or alcohol and you're a drunk trying to show up for work and you're inebriated, that's a big difference. Where you can go out and have a one-night stand or be in sexual sin, it doesn't necessarily affect the rest of your life in an obvious way. Uh, so you might think, well, it's really not that bad. I'm not hurting anybody or it's not really impacting my life that bad. Um, but sin is deceptive by nature. The scripture says uh, that we should beware lest our hearts become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That being said, um, also, you know, it's one thing to think you're an addict. If someone is really like a drug addict or something else and you're trying to get off of drugs, you don't really realize how hooked you are till you try to give it up. So if someone has never really tried to quit their behavior, they may think it's not a big deal because they haven't really experienced that draw and that power because they just give in whatever they feel like it. But it's not till they really want to do something about this addiction that they realize that they really are enslaved. Like the Bible says, you know, sin is addictive. It's enslaving by nature. So just to pursue this argument a little further, I mean, some problems people face in their life are obviously life-threatening. Like if somebody is wrestling with suicide, I mean, that's a, a huge risk that they need to deal with that right there. They need help. Again, like you're saying, sexual sin not being so prominent why is it still so dangerous, such an imminent threat to a person? First of all, there's obvious temporal consequences. You know, if you're in sexual sin and you're married, it could destroy your marriage. Um, there's sexually transmitted diseases, you know, different things that you can get. But really, sin, the Bible teaches the wages of sin is death. And the lie is you will not surely die. And we can buy into that. And that's one of the real dangers of sin, that you can be ready, spiritually speaking, to fall off a cliff and you don't even know it. You just merely go on your way, eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow you die, whatever, and just have this attitude, you know, I can do what I want, there's really no consequences. I like uh, Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are, are fully set in them to do evil. In other words, there's no immediate negative consequences that you can see. So it's all right. I can just keep on doing what I feel like and I'm okay. But the danger of that is, number one, it's a lie. But number two, there will be consequences. Do not be deceived. You know, the Bible says you will reap what you sow. And the wages of sin is always death, even though it's not always readily apparent when you start out in this behavior. Another thing I thought about is how some people are able to hide sexual sin and pretty much keep living a normal life uh, for years. 
I'm sure you've dealt with many men like that. If that's the argument that, you know, this is something that is not touching the rest of my life, it isn't uh, damaging any other area, you know, work, family, whatever, uh, how do you respond to that? I would say, um, again, that's deception because all sin touches all areas of our life. And it's easy for us to compartmentalize things and say, yeah, I have this one little problem like we were talking about earlier and minimize it. But the reality is sexual sin is really just a symptom of a deeper issue. There's something seriously wrong with your walk with the Lord, and there's seriously things that need to be dealt with in your heart. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing this behavior. So even though it may not seem like it's a big deal, it really is. It is a big deal. It's like the tip of the iceberg. There's something seriously wrong that needs to be examined in a person's heart if they've gotten to the point where they're acting out in sexual sin. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul said, Knowing that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners. And he lists sins after that. I would say it this way. In other words, you don't have to tell a righteous man not to commit adultery. You don't have to tell a righteous man not to commit sexual sin or any type of sinful behavior outside of marriage. Um, you don't have to tell a righteous man not to steal or whatever the, whatever the law might be. So that shows that if your life is characterized by ungodly deeds, it's because you're an ungodly individual. I mean, that's the fruit of what's in your heart. Jesus said a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. So that being said, there's no way that you can say it doesn't affect the rest of your life. It's a symptom of what's really going on in your inner life, which is who you truly are as a person. Whether other people see that behavior, whether other people know about it, or whether you see any actual tangible evidence that the sin is destroying your life, it really is a huge issue. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us enjoy things at times that the Bible does say clearly are sinful. That was my testimony when I was in sexual sin. And I mean, it seems like it's happening more and more in our world, things being championed that are just clearly wrong, but people are accepting it. I mean, people defend what they like. And how do you as a counselor break through that natural tendency people have when they come here you know, they're obviously they want help and they know something is wrong to an extent, but I'm sure that thinking can be so ingrained of just defensiveness of this is what I do. This is the way I live my life. How do you break through that? Well, as simplistic as this may sound, as a biblical counselor, I bring people back to the word of God. Because really what they think about their sin or their addiction, what the world says, what our culture dictates, my opinion isn't going to really mean a lot. It doesn't shape reality. The only thing that really is going to help someone is we, if we bring the truth of God's word to bear. So they need to understand the authority of God's word, that he's the final arbitrator on what's right and wrong. And if they don't understand that, then it's going to be easy to to just do whatever they feel like and go by their own standards or compare themselves to other people and say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. But the reality is other people aren't a standard. Jesus Christ is a perfect standard. He's the word of God made flesh. And that is the standard that we need to go by. And let me just throw this out there, uh, Brooks. 
um, just just a couple scriptures to substantiate this, what we think is a culture and what God says about sexual sin. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said of to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her already has committed adultery with her in his heart. So obviously Jesus thought a lot more about this issue than we do as far as the seriousness of sin, that even in the heart, you know, where maybe someone hasn't past maybe just looking at porn and just having that lust in, in their heart. Maybe they haven't acted out with someone else. But as far as Jesus is concerned, that's still sin. You've committed adultery in your heart. And then Paul has mentioned also not to be deceived by sin. He says, don't be deceived. These type of people, and he specifically mentioned sexual sin at the top of the list, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So my cheap standards aren't going to stand, you know, the test of time, and they're certainly not going to work when I stand before God. The only thing that's going to matter is what God says about my behavior. And that's what we do as counselors. We point people back to what the Word of God says. And that's a huge reality check to wake people up and show them the seriousness of what they might think is a small issue or a little problem in their lives. Even when someone begins to see how serious their problem with sexual sin really is, There's more underneath the surface, beyond sexual sin itself, that must be dealt with. Jim Lewis, another Pure Life Ministries counselor, explores the biblical perspective on the problem of pride and how it impacts a person's effort to get free. Jim, we're taught here at Pure Life Ministries that pride is one of the root sins in someone's life. I mean, we even have a book dedicated to this subject called I, the Root of Sin Exposed, and You know, it's a big subject. We can't get into it all right now. Uh, But to start off, I've seen pride portrayed as a good thing. And on the surface, it certainly doesn't seem as bad as some other sins. So just to be blunt, why is it so bad biblically? Well, Brooks, the key to answering your question is the word biblically. How does the Word of God view the sin of pride? Well, there is a sense in which the word pride can mean something that you cherish, something worthy of honor. And so people say that they're proud of their children or proud of their country. This is not the biblical sin of pride. The Bible views pride as the root of all sin against God. I usually get the point across to my counselees this way. I ask them, what was the first sin ever perpetrated in the universe? And if they understand the question, they'll respond that it was when Satan desired to lift himself above God. And what do we call that sin? Pride. So then I ask them, what was the first sin ever committed by a human being on this planet? And they will respond that it was the sin of Eve and Adam in the garden. Right again. And what did Satan say to them when he tempted them? You will be like God knowing good and evil. So Satan, whose own sin was pride, tempted Adam and Eve to rise up against God in their pride. So doesn't it stand to reason that if pride was the sin of Satan and pride was the sin that caused the fall, that pride, the exercise of one's own self-will against God, is the sin that's behind every other sin. Sin is the exercise of self-will. All sin is rebellion against God, the cause of all selfishness 
is pride. The cause of all rebellion is pride. So pride is the sin behind every other sin. Well, now I'd like to ask if you can connect, you know, the description you just gave to our topic at hand today, which is, of course, sexual sin, and more specifically, how we're trying to remove the obstacles to victory over sexual sin. And if pride is one of those obstacles, what is that connection between pride and, in this case specifically, sexual sin? Well, sexual sin is, of course, rebellion against God. It is a deliberate choice to disobey God and to pursue pleasure apart from the parameters of sexual fulfillment that he's laid down in his word, which is the loving and selfless giving that occurs in the sexual union between a husband and a wife who are married to each other. And sexual sin is a particularly selfish and self-centered sin where one is only interested in pleasing oneself. The longer a man stays in sexual sin, the more consumed he is by it, and the more selfish, arrogant, distant, angry, deceitful, bitter, and delusional he becomes. He becomes consumed by pride. When I picture someone who is consumed by pride, it's easy to imagine someone, I mean, who's basically an arrogant jerk. But I've got to think that pride has some more subtle forms that might even be hard for someone to recognize that they have that form of pride. So are there other iterations of this sin in someone's life that aren't as obvious? In his books, At the Altar of Sexual Idolatry and I, the Root of Sin Exposed, Steve Gallagher, our founder and president, identifies seven different forms of pride that can coexist inside a man. Among these are what he calls the haughty spirit, the person who simply sees himself above everyone else. There is unapproachable pride and know-it-all pride. Another one is self-protective pride, the kind that puts up walls and won't let anyone get close. If you're a man and you're still drawing breath, I can guarantee that you suffer from self-protective pride. There is self-exalting pride and unsubmissive pride. The hardest one for a man to spot in his own life, especially if he's a confessing Christian and especially if he's clergy, even if he's in sexual sin, is spiritual pride, the belief that he is somehow more spiritual than most. Pride takes many forms. But when you start to see it, it's always ugly and it runs far deeper than you could have imagined. It's not unusual after a man has allowed the Holy Spirit to examine his heart for him to realize that all seven forms of pride have operated in his life. You know, I've found as time goes on that for me, pride is something that goes on more internally a lot of the times, and I'm not even like verbalizing it or recognizing it myself, I thought of some things that we might say maybe on the inside that come from pride, thinking, I know the answers, I've got this under control, I can do this. Again, I don't think we would say those things out loud, but those attitudes, I would think that as you're counseling, you see that kind of thing in the men that you're dealing with. So sitting on the other side of the desk and facing that pride in men that you're talking to, how is it hindering them 
from being able to see victory over sexual sin? Well, Brooks, quite frankly, a person who's full of pride is often self-sufficient. He doesn't see his own need. He's rebellious at heart. He doesn't receive instruction well because, as you said, he already knows all the answers. If you confront a proud person in his sin, he often rejects your counsel. He doesn't want to hear it. Proverbs calls proud men scoffers. They reject everything except their own proud opinion. Proverbs 3 says that God himself scoffs at the scoffers but gives grace to the humble. And this verse comes across in the New Testament, both in James and in 1 Peter, this way. God himself stands opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, Brooks, only a humble man sees his need. Only a humble man will ask for help and then receive help. Only a humble man will submit to the authority of another and then put into practice the counsel he receives. A counselor is only ever able to help someone who will do what he is being instructed to do. A proud man will reject another's counsel every time. Men come to pure life seeking help with long-standing habits of sexual sin, which they define as wanting to stop certain outward behaviors. Most are very surprised to learn that their problem is much deeper and more severe than they thought. Their problem is that they're full of pride. Their problem is that they are extremely selfish, self-centered takers who have willfully rebellious, disobedient, deceitful, and depraved hearts. And so God himself stands opposed to them, but he will give grace to the humble. And so they need to come way down in their pride and humbly ask God for his grace to help in their time of need. And that's got to take a while for people to get there and to get on the same page with that and see, oh, yeah, that really is my need. But when they get there and they're ready to start taking steps toward rooting out pride, what are some steps someone can take toward seeing this sin uh, reduced and eliminated in their life? Well, for the man who is listening to this podcast, I would say this. Recognize that pride is the first great sin. And it is the sin that stands behind every other sin. Not only your sexual sin, but your fear, your unbelief, your anger, your bitterness, everything. No matter what sin you commit, it is rebellion against God, and all rebellion is born of the pride that says, I do not have to obey God, but I can go my own way. So admit that pride is your problem and begin to repent of pride. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you your pride every time it rears its ugly head. If you can sense his conviction at all, you will begin to see pride everywhere. It will show up every time you want your own way. It will show up every time you get angry. It will show up every time you get impatient or get your will crossed. And every time you see it, Repent of it. Remember that God gives grace, which is his power to change, only to the humble. Admit your need to God and ask for his help. 
and then admit your need to others and ask for their help. Part of the humbling is to bring your sin into the light and admit that you need help overcoming it. You can't keep it a secret and be rid of it. It has to come into the light. Well, now this is a dangerous prayer, but it is one that God will answer. Ask God to humble you. Ask him to bring you down in your pride. Now, I can promise that if you do not humble yourself, God will eventually do the humbling for you. He will do whatever it takes to save you from your sin. And then look for ways to humbly serve the needs of others around you, expecting nothing in return, not even thanks. Every Christian knows that our example in everything that pertains to life is Jesus himself. So read through the Gospels and look at the teaching of Jesus about humility, poverty of spirit, and serving others. Look at the example of Jesus in Philippians 2, how Jesus, being God, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Humility is the very character of Christ. Do a word search Bible study on humility and see it how God sees it and then ask him to help you put it into practice. Your pride has to be broken, or you're not really a Christian at all, at least not in practice. It is your pride that is keeping you from freedom. You have to deal seriously with the sin of pride and then begin to walk in sincere humility. If you've tried unsuccessfully to quit a habit of sexual sin, then there's no doubt that you've run into the wall of failure. You decide you want to change, you take steps in that direction, but soon you find yourself back where you started, doing the same things you were before. When that's where you're at, it's difficult to imagine what it really looks like to start finding freedom. You might be asking questions like, is it wrong to ever fail? Does it prove I'm not serious enough? Does victory mean that I won't ever do it again? Jeremiah Aiken, who, like all of our counselors, came out of addiction himself, has a realistic and optimistic perspective to share about questions like these. And I think it'll be a big help for those who find themselves in this situation. All right, Jeremiah, there is nothing quite as discouraging as failure when you're trying to overcome a certain habit. And I know it's your heart to encourage people that there is freedom and victory for them. But because of the difficulties I know people will face, I just want to start by asking you, should people expect to fail when they are trying to change their habit of sexual sin? Well, I, I want to say to you, Brooks, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like when it comes to spiritual things, people totally like throw out their common sense or how things work in real life. And if you're going to ride a bike, if you expect to get on it perfectly the first time, it's just not going to happen. You're not going to ride the bike perfectly. And some people don't want to try because they don't want to fail. But in real life, when you're learning to do stuff, you know, you're going to fall. And if you're going to learn how to ride a bike, you're going to fall like a hundred times. But you got to get back up. You got to persist. And when you're encountering, when you're trying to overcome the habit of sexual sin, it is 
it is like trying to get on a bike and you really you have to be prepared yep you're going to have to learn you're going to have failures but you just persist and you got to have that kind of mindset yeah i understand what you're saying there now obviously they can't just keep living the same way they lived before if they're trying to change that wouldn't be a change so can you help me understand a little more what exactly then is in your mind when you're saying that people can expect failure yeah just to give you you know two two examples um like one i want to kind of go with like lust in the mind like okay you you're you're having trouble with fantasies in your mind. It's it's a mental battle, okay, sexual sin. It's in your mind. Um, when it comes to your mind, you got to think of it like a forest, and each thought is forming a pathway. And the more you travel down that pathway, the more it begins to form a trail. I mean, that's how our minds work. So the more we think about certain things, the more ingrained they become in our mind. So to turn from thought patterns that potentially could be in your life 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, it, it, it can be very daunting for sure. Um, but I'm very grateful that Scripture gives us some clear guidelines on how to deal with the mind, and especially when we have um, things that have worn pathways in our mind. Um, the Lord does say to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ um, in Second Corinthians 10. 5 through 6. And in Philippians, it tells us what to think on. So we have to take our thoughts captive, okay, what the the sinful patterns that we have in our mind. We have to take those captive. We have to begin to recognize those and turn from them. But then we also have to begin to think on the things God calls us to think on, and that's in Philippians 4, 8, and 9. It says, whatever is honorable, right, pure, lovely, good, excellent, worthy of praise, think on these things. So, you know, it's definitely... Um, a battle. It definitely takes time. Um, but the Lord has laid out those principles for us. But I do want to just say one more thing because it's easy to kind of share scripture. And it's like, well, what does that look like in real time in combat? Okay. So taking those two scriptures, okay, if I'm going to Walmart, okay, and this is for any sister or brother struggling with sexual sin, if I'm going to Walmart and I see someone that is attractive, okay, to say I shouldn't lust after that. That does, that does nothing for me. My heart is lusting, okay? How do I deal with that, okay? How do I deal with what's going on in my mind, what's going on in my heart? Pray for them. Pray for them. Turn your mind from thinking, from coveting, and pray for them. That's easy to say, hard to do. We can get a lot of practice. If we are uh, those who struggle with lust a lot, like me, who are struggling from lust on a daily basis, you, you're, you're going to learn how to pray a lot, okay? Learn to pray for people instead of lusting for them. That's just a real-life example on how to apply those two scriptures in everyday life. Yeah, so you're alluding to a battle and how to wage that battle. I want to follow that up in just a minute, but before I do, it really helped me when you were giving like that concrete example can you maybe do that same kind of thing, but just perhaps with, you know, another example of a sexual sin aspect that people would struggle with? Okay, yeah, thanks, Brooks. I, I would like to bring up one other one, and that's just this, the struggle of masturbation, which is um, just a common struggle more and more between both men and women. Um, obviously, the the things I shared about the mind go right inside with that because, you know, typically we are um, fantasizing in our mind, and then that goes to masturbation, but masturbation 
you, you're crossing another line. Okay, you're going from just thinking to acting out something. And so I just want to encourage brothers and sisters out there, um, if you're caught in the stronghold of masturbation, one thing that you need to do <laughs> if you're caught in this sin is you need to you, first you need to repent before the Lord. Okay. First John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confession before the Lord brings cleansing and forgiveness. Okay, but number two, which is where we fail, you need to confess it one to another. God has created the body to heal itself, okay? Cars can't heal themselves. You get a flat tire, you got to get a new one. The cars, you can just leave the car there, nothing's going to change. You get a cut, your body is set up in a way that it will begin to heal itself, okay? You need to confess your sins to one to another, to a spiritual authority, so that you can receive healing. God heals our hearts. But there's the collateral damage from sin, and we also sin against the body of Christ. We need to learn if you are giving over to masturbation, you need to bring that to the light, okay? That's a sin you need to bring to the light, and you need to confess before spiritual authority. That's good practical advice. Well, now back to the idea of failure, and I want to go back to that battle you were alluding to earlier. Um, What is the difference between a failure, you know, maybe losing a battle— And what does actual defeat look like, losing the war against this sin? What's the difference between those two? That is a great question. (laughs) That's just a really good question, and it's one um, I know for me as a counselor, constantly have to deal with this, and I was in this. Okay, I was in the failure-defeat kind of mindset. I was thinking I was failing when really I was in defeat, and that is so common for men and women who struggle with sexual sin. They have convinced themselves, deluded themselves into thinking that they're failing when they're really just in a cycle of constant defeat. Okay, Um, just go back to the illustration of masturbation. I was giving over to masturbation on a regular basis, but when I shared it, it was always, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. No, if you're giving in to masturbation, you're lifting up the white flag and you're surrendering to the enemy and you're being overrun. If you're viewing pornography regularly, If you're in illicit relationships, you're not struggling, okay? You are defeated. You're you're defeated, and you need to – you need serious help. Here's someone in failure, okay? I got a guy. I'm counseling. Okay, he's pressing into the Lord. He's spending time with God daily in his Bible study and in prayer time. He's seeking the Lord, but he's seeing that he's an absolute mess. He feels worse. He's wondering if he's saved at this point because he's seeing just all the rubble and all the sin in his life. That brother, I'm going to encourage. I'm like, God is moving in your life. That's the Holy Spirit showing you who you are. Don't give up. Keep going, brother. God is working in you. The Holy Spirit is illuminating in you. Keep going, brother. And that's where I just encourage that brother, you know, that God is building character. God is doing a deep work of building endurance and character and hope inside of you. But he takes us through trials. And so that that brother... That's someone in failure, whereas the first illustration, that's someone who's just defeated. All right. So you spoke to there, the person who is not in defeat. They're just in a failure because they have an overall walk that's heading in the right direction. What about the people who might hear that and realize, oh, I guess I'm in defeat and this isn't just a failure? What do they do to get out of that? I mean, I know we can't go into a lot of it, but just you know, in a brief way, how would you answer that? 
brief in a brief way um they need a lot of help and so that's where you just you got to ask for help you you can't do this by yourself if you're a soldier fighting by yourself you're going to lose i mean bottom line the enemy is going to just gather forces rain down on you and you're just going to get weaker and weaker okay and you need help you need the body of christ you need spiritual authorities you got to learn to get in the word you need to learn how to pray you need to learn how to fight and so you know you need a lot of help. That's why our program, our program's a great one, but also your local church. You gotta, you need help. If you see you're in defeat, get help. I thought we could take a moment and just maybe share some things personally, because maybe that'll help someone who's, you know, dealing with this themselves. I, myself, you know, you were talking about how God helps us if we will open up to people, to the church. I, I really can testify that that happens and that God can restore people. I remember the other summer when I was traveling on vacation, I don't usually, you know, get out a lot. Uh, and so there was more temptation there than normal toward lust. I remember just under the temptation of that situation, um, just a day where, you know, instead of fighting, like I am taught to do, like I, you know, do with God's help on a daily basis that I just sort of threw up the white flag and just gave into that for a day, that, uh, that lust. And it was a dark day, the darkest day in a long time that I can remember. But, you know, God helped me the next day, first thing in the morning, to call someone who was a spiritual authority in my life here at Pure Life um, and just to tell him what had happened. And there was, I, I just... It was so different than how it used to be when I, you know, just lived in that sin. I, it was night and day. That next day, I was completely back. The Lord's presence was there, and I, I didn't, it wasn't a rut. I didn't get in a rut of sin. I just went on with my life with God. And yeah, I, I guess I'm surprised or was surprised at the time just how uh, dramatic of a shift that could have happened. I mean, number one, how you can really fall into a sin, uh, and it can be surprising how that can happen. But then number two, you know, how you can just so quickly, the Lord can take you out of it, you know, through a brother, through talking to someone, getting prayer, confessing it. I just, it was, it was a lesson to me. Just going along with that, Brooks, uh, that was so good. Um, Yeah, I can remember a similar situation um, where I was doing well spiritually, and I kind of took my foot off the brake. I had some vacation time, and I just wanted to, you know, this is my time now. I can watch some movies. I can really relax. And the Lord was very clear, like, you know, well, if you're going to watch some some movies, you need to spend more time with me. And I said I would, but I didn't. And so I just kind of gave over to my flesh, and then I got very, very sick with the flu, and then the lust hit me. And spiritually, I was just unarmed. And, you know, I really gave over to some sin that, um, you know, also I'd been walking victory, and it was devastating. Like, it was absolutely devastating to me. And I remember I got up early and found a place, and I was just crying out to the Lord for a time. And I knew I had to call my spiritual authority. First moment, it it wasn't too early, but it was early enough to call him. I I called him, and I'll never forget, all he said was, well, you got to get up and keep going. And that was it. (laughs) That was all he said. And I made some, I saw that I had some leaks in my life. I saw that I really wasn't spending quality time with the Lord in the morning. I recommitted myself to the Lord. 
And within two weeks, it was hard. It was a hard two weeks. But within two weeks, I was further ahead spiritually than I was before I fell. And so the Lord really taught me a lesson and really just helped me get back on my feet through that failure. He used that failure to help me. And so, yeah. Well, I guess we've established now that failure is a reality that we have to face at some times in our Christian life, that it's not going to like define your life if you're really walking with God, but that it could be there. It could happen, especially as you're getting over sexual sin, you know, being a habit. I wanted you maybe now to talk some more about what are some of the possible lessons that someone should be open to learning while they're dealing with a failure that's occurred in their life? Just one thing with that, Brooks, one misconception, I think, at least this is what I always had. I always approached the Bible like, you know, I want to be like these almost perfect people. You know, I want to walk like these people. The Bible isn't full of perfect people. It's full of people who God gave showed mercy to. The, the, the Bible is a story about God's mercy to fallen people. I mean, you go through it, David, I mean, tremendous failure. And I don't, I'm not touting the failure, but it's, you know, Abraham, you know, lied about his wife three times. Um, Samson, you know, just got hung up on a girl and just kept missing it. But then Samson's in the Hall of Fame of Faith. David's a man after God's own heart. Abraham, you know, um, the father of the faith. We will fail, but God's mercy will overcome. And I don't, I'm not giving people license or anything like that. You have to deal with those, your failures. And each one of those men paid a great price for their failures. I mean, Samson got his eyes gored out. David, um, the kingdom was taken away from him for a season. His son died. You know, Abraham had to go through Ishmael leaving the house. Um, So, you know, there's consequences to our failures, but it's God's mercy, okay? It's God's mercy. And one thing we learn from our, our failures, when I try to battle in my own strength, I will always fail. Psalms 27 through 9 says, some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord, may the King answer us in the day we call. When we trust in the Lord, we will be victorious. When we trust in ourselves, we will fall. That's just throughout Scripture, and the Bible is full of imperfect people who turn to the Lord in their failures. And that's the key. Turn to the Lord. Don't turn to yourself. Turn to the Lord in your failure. Call out to the Lord. That's the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Who was who was justified? The man who cried out to the Lord in his failure. The tax collector. Okay, not the religious guy. The tax collector. God will hear our cry when we call out to him in our failure. But we have to call out to the Lord. And I know we kind of already touched on this about taking proper action after someone fails. Can you revisit that maybe for a moment and give us any other advice you'd have to someone, you know, right after a failure occurs in their life? What what should they do? Yeah, that's another good question, Brooks. Um, you know, and just, you know, real, real brief, uh, repent to the Lord, turn from your sin, and you turn from your sin by cutting off any of the entrances which soon is coming into your life. It's the internet. You might need to get rid of the internet. I know that's like impossible for some people, but yeah, you need to cut off your sin. Um, You need to confess to your spiritual authorities and then do something. (laughs) 
Do something. Be like Jesus. Get involved in the needs of others. Go to a soup kitchen, okay? Those are just three simple steps that you can do uh, on the heels of a failure um, to get you back on track. This is how I'd, I'd sum it up, okay? Um, and I'm going to just use Scripture because the Lord just knows. The Lord knows how we have to handle being in a fallen world. Why? Because he did it. <laughs> he did it. It says in James 1, 2 through 4, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, your faith is being tested, okay? That's what we need to understand. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance there's something being produced (laughs) in us when we face trials it's producing endurance and let endurance have its perfect work why so that you may be perfect or complete lacking in nothing the lord is doing something in your life okay yeah it's hard yeah it's difficult yeah there's failures get back up and keep getting back up and keep your eyes on the lord okay and walk with your fellow brothers and sisters. For those out there who found that victory seemed to be an elusive and impossible thing, I hope that it's been helpful for us to clearly point out some of the hidden obstacles that can trip people up along the way. And for those who make the choice to keep on seeking God in spite of the obstacles, remember that He does promise freedom to all those who will seek Him with their whole heart. Well, before we go today, I also want to mention a brand new resource that we have available for a limited time here at Pure Life. Back in April, we had our 2019 annual conference, which was an exciting two days of learning how to live victoriously through many dangers, toils, and snares. The conference featured three main sessions with speakers Steve Gallagher, Dave Leopold, and Glenn Meldrum, as well as multiple Q&A and breakout sessions. With topics geared toward helping those seeking answers to sexual sin, as well as anyone desiring to live an overcoming Christian life. Now we've made the 2019 conference sessions available in our web store, both in video and audio format. You can check out more details about this product and purchase your own copy on DVD, CD, or MP3 at store.purelifeministries.org. Well, that's all for today's episode. Thanks so much for joining us, and we will see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.